Welcome to the Biscuit Mountain Breakdown, the podcast where nature and education connect. Join us for discussions with researchers and experts and expand your understanding of outdoor education, nature, and science. We're tuning in from the Phoebe Hall Nippling Outdoor Lab, located in beautiful Falkir County, Virginia. Founded in 1967, the lab includes 226 acres of woodlands, two small mountains, streams, meadows, hiking trails, a nature center, and a rustic cottage, and so much more. The Outdoor Lab is the brainchild of the late Dr. Phoebe Hall Nippling, who was the first female science director in Arlington County Schools. Annually, the lab provides hands-on outdoor and environmental education to more than 9,000 Arlington Public School students from elementary grades through high school. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another exciting episode of the Biscuit Mountain Breakdown. I'm here with Michelle, and we have a wonderful interviewee to share with you today. Michelle, can you tell us a bit about who we interviewed? Oh boy, it's a good one, Charlie. You're going to really, really like this one. We spoke with Bridget Brunet. And Bridget, let me tell you about her. She's a field biologist and she studies hawk migration. So she talked all about how cool hawks are and she imparts all this wisdom and knowledge about hawks to us. She gives us some context to her research and we learn all kinds of really fascinating facts about hawks and bird migration. And then as like a little treat at the end, we're also going to listen to her, let us know about how anyone, really anyone can get involved into this world of bird watching. And it's really exciting if you've ever thought about it or wanted to do more with bird watching because you love birds, you love nature. Bridget has some great tips for us today. We're live. Live, okay. Um, so yeah, I worked as a nurse for five, almost five years, um, before getting into field biology in early 2020. Um, and <laughs> God bless nurses. That is a, that is a challenging career path. Um, it's something that I, I really admire the folks who are doing it, but it just, I found it wasn't for me. Um, so after five years, <laughs> Um, so getting into birds and birding um, was really kind of, I kind of stumbled into it. I, you know, I've always been interested in being outside, as um, I know you guys are, you know, familiar with and passionate about as well. Um, I grew up in western New York, and uh, it's kind of in the middle of nowhere, and just spent a lot of time um, out in the fields and the woods around my house. We had like, you know, like 300 acres um, that some neighbors owned that we were allowed to go out and kind of traipse around on. So I, I've always had this really strong connection to the natural world, but this bird thing <laughs> um, began uh, as I was transitioning out of nursing at the end of uh, 2018. Um, I was gonna be taking a year long um, trip across, road trip across the country with my then partner. Um, that ended up getting shortened a lot because my partner and I decided to go separate ways. Um, and so in the course of that, I was like, okay, I'm kind of out here in New Mexico on my own. Um, you know, I bought my own van at that point um, to continue to do, to do some traveling. Um, and I'd been interested in birds for probably the last four or five years because my little sister and her husband 
um, had spent about six months in Tanzania at a field station there. And they came back. Yeah, it was, it was a really cool experience. Um, they came back and Rachel, my little sister, was like, you know, carrying binoculars with her everywhere and was kind of like, <laughs> like we actually were visiting my mom who lives in the Orkney Islands in Scotland. And um, she was like looking around everywhere and, you know, identifying these birds. And I was just kind of, there you go. And you've got your binoculars too, Michelle. <laughs> um, I was just totally flabbergasted and so impressed by the fact that she could just look at this bird and identify it and know what it was. Um, so that, that was probably four or five years ago. And that started me kind of on this like bird trajectory of being like, okay, that's it. That's a cool way to sort of specifically connect with the natural world, you know, beyond this sort of general love. Educators, it's those little, those, those highly specific connections um, that I think are the most powerful. Instead of just being able to like look at a landscape and say like, well, there's a bunch of green and there are some birds. If you can say like, well, there's a dogwood tree and on that dogwood tree is a Carolina wren, it just, it just increases your sense of connection to it so much. So anyways, I kind of fell into birds in that way, just through my little sister. And then after in 2019, when my partner and I broke up and I was like, okay, here I am kind of stranded in New Mexico. Um, what do I do <laughs> from here on out? What's my next step? Um, and so, yeah, I, I had saved up some money from my time as a nurse. And so I knew I had a little while to figure things out. I wasn't desperate to make money. Um, but one thing led to another. And I, I was like, you know, I kind of have heard about field biology as, as a track, um, that that's something you can do for a living. Um, and so I just started, Google is like your best friend when it comes to these kinds of things. I was like, you know, like, field biology like job board uh, websites and I ended up finding some and um, I was actually visiting my mom at this point in in the Orkney Islands again was staying there over the winter of 2019 and I found on one of these job boards a position for a field biology um, avian field biology like intern position um, down at a field station at a place called Navapatia in southern Sonora in, in northern Mexico. And I was like, oh boy, <laughs> that sounds like everything that I just absolutely love um, to do. You know, deserts are my favorite ecosystem. And I've always wanted to go to Mexico. When I was a nurse, um, the vast majority of my patient base were folks from Mexico. And I just, I felt a, a connection to the country as a result of that. Um, so yeah, I flew back from Scotland. This was uh, end of December, 2019. Um, and flew back from rural Scotland, arrived in Santa Fe where I had my van in storage with a friend and then drove it down to uh, Mexico <laughs> and started this internship there. So that, that was kind of, it was, it was an unpaid intern position, but absolutely top-notch instruction as far as like this is how you become a field biologist. So we were actually out in the field uh, collecting data um, but it was like a learning-based position which was perfect for me because I was just starting out and it kind of amazed me how much I was able to pick up what I needed to know in a relatively short period of time um, and with the kind of you know casual birding I've been doing um, until that point, I found that things just kind of coalesced really quickly. And I was like, I, this is exactly what I want to be doing with my life. I want to be outside. I feel so passionate about conservation. 
And this is a way that I can do it in a really like specific hands-on manner where I'm also getting to be outside and enjoying loving what I'm doing. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how I got into the bird world. It's all very recent um, and I love it. So yeah. <laughs> wow. Thank you so much for sharing that insight to your journey. Like, I love the idea of wonder and just like being able to look into a patch of woods and seeing all the things that I don't know the name for. Mm -hmm. And also in, in my journey of like, uh, you know, being outside and appreciating nature. When I first worked at the lab in 2013 or 2014, I started learning the names of tree species and fungi and so on and so forth. And it just totally changed the way that I could relate to my surroundings. It's like getting totally. to a person, you know, if you yeah. first name basis, like uh, you'll have a probably a better relationship. So yeah, I can yeah. appreciate that sentiment. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah. And it's something too, where, um, I mean, having that kind of specific connection to the natural world can, it's something that I feel like it, it is beneficial for both human beings and for the natural, the rest of the natural world. I mean, we are the natural world, of course, like that phrase is, um, and it, yeah, it looks like from your expressions, you guys have agreement with that. It's, it's definitely, uh, something that I, I think a lot about when we have that specific connection, like you were saying, Charlie, like it's, it's like knowing, getting to know a person. And if you don't, if you don't, if someone is a random stranger, I mean, you might sort of have like a vague general, um, like I care about your well-being, but if you can say like, no, this is what I love about this person and I know them really well, you're going to do a lot more for that individual. <laughs> so, um, and it also just mm -hmm. makes life way more interesting and way more fun for us too. So yeah, I mm -hmm. totally agree that specificity is so important. I remember when I first met you, you had mm -hmm. just returned from the Eastern shore of Virginia. Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah. Can, can you tell us and the listeners <laughs> what, uh, what you were doing out there on the Eastern shore? Yeah. So for folks who don't know what the Eastern shore is, because I don't know if you guys have been, yeah, there you go. I don't know if you've encountered this, but a lot of folks are like, like from the Valley and, and throughout the rest of Virginia have no idea what the Eastern shore is. Um, so yeah, it's, it's the Delmarva Peninsula. It comes down from Maryland. It's essentially the, the Eastern part of the land form that forms that allows the Chesapeake Bay to be formed um, is one way to think of it. Um, so it's, it's the land on the other side of the Chesapeake Bay across from like Virginia Beach and Norfolk and all that. Being a peninsula, it's an interesting place for a lot of different things, including hawk migration, bird migration in general, but hawks as in particular is related to what I was studying there. Um, so I had a position there with a place called the Coastal Virginia Wildlife Observatory. They are an absolutely awesome, tiny little nonprofit organization um, that has been running this bird observatory down there for like 40 some years. Um, and essentially, um, their, their kind of flagship program is a hawk watch. It's called Kip's Peak Hawk Watch. That's kind of what it's better known by. Um, and essentially, a hawk watch is a place where um, people station themselves during either spring or fall migration. Um, to watch migrating hawks pass through. Um, so it's kind of all in the name, um, but some areas uh, geographically speaking are more 
attuned to that are better for that than others. And there's a number of different reasons why that can be. In the case of the peninsula, um, most raptors, birds in general, aren't, are wanting to avoid flying over open bodies of water as much as possible. And so if a bird kind of gets, you know, as they're migrating south, um, you know, during, during the fall, um, if they're coming from Northern Territories and then they're, they kind of get edged over um, into the top of the peninsula, essentially it acts like a bottleneck. So they, they are migrating um, kind of in this V shape until they get to the end of the peninsula, which is where this Kipta Peacock Watch is located. And so all the birds that were kind of flying in that general trajectory get concentrated over this one area. So in one day, I mean, you can see the numbers used to be much, much bigger than this, but even when I was there, we had a day where we had almost a thousand um, raptors that we saw in one day. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it's it's um, quite impressive the numbers that you can see. These can be you know tiny, tiny little specks that are way far up in the sky um, that you have to search with a spotting scope in order to find them. Um, or they can be birds that are you know you can have a peregrine falcon fly you know. 30 feet above your head. <laughs> so it's kind of everything in between there. It's a it's a really magical experience, um, especially on the days when there's heavy migration. Um, and the whole purpose of this is with raptors in particular, they're a hard species to uh, study in some ways. You know, they're relatively secretive. Their occurrence, uh, you know, like in a in an area of land is on the lower side because they're apex predators, so there are just naturally fewer of them. Um, and so there it makes it a little bit difficult to study their incidence and occurrence. Um, but if you look at them during migration, you know, that's when they're kind of for the most most of them are moving through a particular area. So it gives you a kind of a bulk overview of what are the populations looking like, how are they doing? Are there specific raptors that we see their populations are really tanking, um, or are there some that are doing much better than previous years? And there are hawk watches all over the country, so everybody kind of pours their data into one collective pot, and then each year you have a new data set to work with. So that's what I was doing on the Eastern Shore. Being such a specific uh, biome, that sort of like estuary, uh, and like you said, the peninsula acting as a bottleneck for that migration, that sounds really cool. Did you uh, did you manage to like get attuned with other species of birds or other like uh, waterfowl or anything like that while you were out there? Yeah, yeah. So um, the bulk of raptor migration usually happens September through October. October is generally the the peak point, and then once November rolls around, um, you're really seeing a lot of um, uh, birds that might be unusual for the area coming through. Um, or birds like, um, you know, snow geese and tundra swans, which come over in these incredible formations. I don't know if you guys have ever seen them fly over, but, oh, it's, it's just beautiful. Michelle's nodding her head. So, <laughs> um, yeah, they're, it's just kind of incredible to watch, watch them. Um, I know, I think this was in October, towards the end of October, but we were having some uh, historic uh, blue jay and robin flights this year. I mean, huge numbers. Like in one day, I think our high for robins, if I'm not mistaken, was somewhere around 12,000 in, in a single day. Um, and then over the course of the season, we had over 90,000 robins and, 
80-some thousand blue jays. And these numbers, they sound fake, right? Like they don't actually, they don't actually seem quite like, like how could you possibly, that's what people would always ask, is like, you saw 12,000 robins in like two hours today? Like how did you count them? And um, the, the answer is, so I was working with a, a guy who's uh, been doing hawk watches for um, years and years and is super great at what he does. So he was kind of teaching me, you know, as we were going, this is how you're identifying these birds and how you're counting them in big numbers. You essentially just count by more than, um, you know, multiples that are bigger than one. So depending on the group size that you're seeing coming past, you might be counting birds by fives, by tens. If they're really big groups and you have to count quickly, you know, especially if they're coming close to you, you might have to be counting by fifties or even hundreds. And you're just, you're just doing your best estimate. Um, and when you have two people who are counting, like myself and this guy, Carl, I was working with, um, you, you both are like, you know, you, you take your estimates and then you, you take the, the average between the two. Um, so yeah, to answer your question, there, there were, there was so much bird life moving through um, of all different species. And the Eastern Shore is actually known for its incredible fall migration for, um, in particular for warblers. Um, this was kind of a, unfortunately, a low year for warblers. There wasn't a whole lot of that activity going on. Um, but have you guys, are you familiar with um, finches and their kind of on off seasonal migration patterns? Is that something you're familiar with? No. Um, so uh, there are certain species of finches that tend to stay further north, um, things like purple finches and then birds like evening grosbeaks as well. There's this group of birds that will generally stay north if the food supplies are good enough. Um, and then if, if um, there are these cyclic uh, cycles with like pine, pine uh, cone crops and things in the north and if those aren't doing so well in a particular year the birds kind of all flood further to the south um, and that's actually part of the reason we were seeing such huge um, numbers of blue jays too so that's known as eruptive migration it's like spelled with an i um, and it's it tends to happen on a, approximately a two-year cycle where these um, the hypothesis that i've heard is that these pines are sort of flooding the market um, you know, these different, uh, with their, with their, you know, future pine babies, <laughs> so that um, <clears throat> they'll, it'll kind of overwhelm uh, these birds, and they'll be like, wow, look at all this, and then we have all these babies, and then the following year, they'll be like, oh, wait, we actually don't have enough crop for you, and they'll kind of rescind it all, and then a lot of the population will either die off of birds, or they'll fly further south. Um, so this year was an was an on year for these eruptive migrants. Um, the the pine crops further north were were playing their trick on them and rescinding their abundant crop. Um, so that was another incredible group of birds that we got to see. So cool! Oh my goodness! Yeah, studying migratory birds, whether one is doing it from their backyard or in a state park on the eastern shore as a researcher. Mm -hmm it allows one to get a glimpse into the interconnectedness of this whole world. Creatures that are connected to lands thousands of miles away mm -hmm. that are passing over us. And I think for, for me in particular to, to know that a bird has spent 
the winter season in like subtropical jungle and is now hanging out in Virginia in August. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that to me is, is just fascinating. Mm -hmm. I have another question for you about yeah. your bird watching. We hope to impart some knowledge on the layperson as to how they might go about bird watching, uh, getting involved and finding that connection that we're talking about to be able to understand a bit more about its life cycle. Um, so in that, in, in that spirit, um, would you have any tips or tricks of the trade uh, when it comes to uh, bird watching in general, but perhaps specifically spotting raptors and what you would look for or were trained to look for uh, in, your, in your time on the Eastern shore? So, um, yeah, as far as just, if someone's interested in learning how to watch birds, I mean, it's, it's so simple. You don't even need to have a pair of binoculars. Um, if you don't, if you, you know, can't afford them at, at this time, or you just don't have them and you want to start bird watching today, you've been so inspired by this conversation, you know? <laughs> um, I, I think something that I love about birds and birding is, um, it's such an equal playing field as far as the birds themselves are concerned. They don't care, you know, what your background is. They don't care if you can identify them all or not. Um, they're totally not paying attention to us except when they're, we're getting like too close to their space and, and then they, you know, fly away because we're bothering them. Um, that's just something that I, I love about, about birds and about birding is that as the birds are just I mean, they're doing their own thing entirely. And of course, our actions in a larger sense um, affect them. But as far as if you're, just, if you're just sitting there watching a bird, standing there watching a bird, uh, that creature is just going about its life. And, and, um, and there's something incredibly freeing to me about watching something that's outside of yourself like that, that is just so unrelated to the human sphere. I mean, I just think that's incredibly <laughs> freeing in some ways. And of course, I mean, obviously there are connections, but um, yes, I would say for folks who are interested in getting into bird watching, don't allow, uh, I mean, there's elitist culture in any circle and the same can be true for birding, which is kind of hilarious because I'm always like, guys, we're all nerds. If you like birds, like you're a nerd, there's really not, you know, what are you being elitist about? Um, but, you know, if you've encountered elitism and that's kind of kept you from wanting to get into this, I would just encourage folks to set all of that concern aside. I mean, there were years where when I first got interested in birding, I wouldn't even know the bird's name. I would just sit and watch it for like an, like a single bird. I would just kind of stare at for like half an hour <laughs> and watch what it was doing. Um, that's something that I encourage a lot of folks to do who are interested in getting into birds um, is to put the focus on um, behavioral observations or kind of almost like making a, if I can use these words, to me, it feels like a really like a spiritual connection where you're, you're watching this creature sort of live its life and different folks would have different ways of describing that. Um, but to me, it feels like very much close to my heart to be able to sit and watch this creature's life unfold. Um, you know, with the you know charismatic megafauna, um, a lot of the times their their mammals are hiding. You know, um, a lot of them are nocturnal or crepuscular, or they're just really good at not wanting to be seen by humans. 
birds care less about that. And so they offer this incredible opportunity to um, yeah, have that specificity of connection that we were talking about. Um, they're really cheap binoculars online. You know, you can, you can go to Amazon and get a refurbished pair for anywhere from 20 to $80 that will be totally serviceable, um, depending on what your budget is. A lot of people just have those tiny little, you know, kind of folding binoculars and they're not the greatest optics, but they give you, you know, some kind of increased vision. Um, so yeah, I would, I would say just go outside and start noticing and you don't have to know what the names of these birds are. Just walk outside and start kind of feeling into whatever, whether you live in the middle of the city um, or you're out in the country or somewhere in between, there are going to be birds around. So just start noticing. And when you do notice a bird, there's um, a really good app that I've referred a lot of folks to called um, Merlin, which is by the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Uh, that's, it's a free resource. You can download it right on your smartphone and it uh, has, you know, comprehensive, you can download packets for different areas of the U.S. It's, it's a comprehensive look at the bird life in North America. Um, they also have songs and calls in there. So it's just a, it's a free way to start learning to identify birds. Um, as far as raptors go, <laughs> that's a, that's, that's an interesting and challenging one. Um, identifying raptors in flight is pretty tricky. And I was really, um, it's definitely something that can be done. It's not like unapproachable. Um, but I was really lucky to be working with this, this guy who had been doing this for so many years. But if I think trying to do it on my own would have been a little overwhelming. So my suggestion to folks who are getting, who are interested in getting into hawk watching is to actually go to a hawk watch. Um, besides Kip to Peak, we have a couple other really good ones here in Virginia. The one over on Afton Mountain uh, near Charlottesville is, is one that a lot of folks are familiar with. So that's going to be a different population of raptors um, than you'd see on the eastern shore. Uh, we tend to get more, you know, falcons over there. In the mountains, they tend to get these huge flights of broad-winged hawks. You know, you can have kettles of them swirling around in the sky that are a few thousand birds. So um, that would be my recommendation for folks is to go to a hawk watch and just start asking questions. The folks who work there or who volunteer there um, or just people who love hawk watching are going to be more than willing to share that information with you. Um, kind of the basic tenets though of IDing a hawk that's flying by or any bird is that you're looking mostly at the shape of the bird, its silhouette, um, combined with uh, the way in which it's flying. Um, which just takes observation. For me, the best way to do that was I would I would just stare at a bird <laughs> for like like once I knew you know okay that's a merlin and it's really far it's a tiny little speck but you know Carl told me that this is a merlin so I would follow it with a spotting scope for as long as I could keep it in my sights just to kind of memorize how is it beating its wings is it um, you know, is it fast? Is it slow? Is it powerful? Does it kind of look weak and floppy? Um, you know, just all these different clues you can start to piece together. And then if you take that knowledge and then you try, you know, you, you kind of build up enough of your repertoire and then you look up in the sky one day and you see a bird flying past. When you have that moment of like, oh my God, that's a Merlin. And I wasn't even, you know, trying to identify it that's, I just knew what it was as soon as I saw it. That's an exciting feeling. So um, it can feel a bit daunting to approach, but I would totally recommend it. 
And now, a word from our sponsors. You've been feeling down for the last three months of winter. Have you been observing young plant shoots popping up through the soil? Or perhaps more birdsong in the morning? Or the warm touch of sun on your face? The season of spring has been proven to alleviate symptoms of winter doldrums and bring an overall sense of wellness to your life. It works like this. As the Earth's axis tilts towards the sun, the continents in the Northern Hemisphere are exposed to more sunlight each day, thus bringing warmth and a profusion of life to the Northern Hemisphere. Visit your local park today and experience spring. Side effects may include happiness seeing the sun again, an urge to garden, an urge to clean house, as well as other urges. Spring is not recommended for snowmen or vampires. When you spoke to um, observing the behaviors of different birds, this is something that being immersed at the outdoor lab in, in nature and around these animals all the time, it's something that I have begun to like really understand and appreciate, you know, uh, just like we were talking about getting to know somebody. Like if you're like hanging around someone, you kind of start understanding their um, mannerisms and such and being able to consistently observe a particular species, even if I didn't know what it was. Uh, now I know that the Carolina Wren likes to hang out in little, uh, covered places, you know, uh, mm -hmm. he like came to connect that the Latin name troglodytidae means cave. <laughs> that is so cool. I yeah. just, I never made that connection. We're totally right. <laughs> I, yeah, I think that, uh, whoever named that would have observed them in like caves and they're, you know, they're sort of like, they like to hang out in wood piles. But anyways, that's all to say that, uh, yeah. Oh. That is so cool. I yeah. just, I never made that connection. We're totally right. I, yeah, I think that uh, whoever named that would have observed them in like caves and they're, you know, they're sort of like, they like to hang out in wood piles. But anyways, that's all to say that, uh, yeah, I absolutely relate to that suggestion and can also highly recommend to anyone who's interested in uh, finding more about birds like you don't need you don't necessarily even need like an id book if you start making your own inferences this might right. make your connection to them that much more meaningful yeah i'm really glad you you pointed that out because for me that's i mean that's what i did for years um was just kind of tootle around the southeast whenever i get a chance during the winter i'd take my old truck down um, to like, you know, South Carolina, Georgia, Florida um, for a couple weeks in the winter. And I would just sit on the beaches and watch shorebirds. And I, most of the time I didn't even know what they were besides the really obvious ones. Like I was like, okay, that's a great blue hair. And I can say that with certainty. <laughs> and that is a pelican of the white variety. And, you know, so like, <laughs> I didn't know very much, but I, it's funny because I, I thought I didn't know a lot. And there, of course, I mean, there's so much more to learn, but what was fascinating to me is that that was what my birding was for years, was just watching birds and not even trying to identify them. And then when I went to Mexico and started uh, working in field biology, I 
I remember telling the director of the field station, well, like, well, you know, I'm something along the lines of like, I'm really excited that I got this position because being like a beginning birder, I didn't know if, you know, if I would like get this position. And he just like kind of looked at me and was like, Bridget, you're not, you're not a beginning birder. And I was like, I'm not. <laughs> and I just, because I didn't know the names of a lot of these species, I assumed that, I don't know, I, I assumed I knew less than I actually did. So all of that to say, I picked up way more than I knew over the years from simply doing this, yeah, this long-term observation. Um, and, you know, I don't know if anyone who would be listening to the podcast might be interested in getting into field biology, but um, just a plug for field biology, this is, there's an entire, uh, you know, <laughs> group of field biology jobs that involve essentially sitting and watching birds or walking around and finding particular birds and watching them very, very closely for like hours. So if that's the kind of birding you, you find yourself drawn to um, and you happen to be looking for a career change or you know, you're know you graduating high school, I don't have, you know, I have my bachelor's of science in nursing, but I don't have a biology, a biology degree. And in fact, most of the field biologists I know have other backgrounds. So it's, it's a career track that's open to uh, surprisingly open to a lot of different folks. So just a little plug for field bio there. <laughs> Could you repeat the name real quick of that uh, Cornell Lab of Ornithology app one more time? Yeah, it's called uh, the Merlin ID app. So if you just look up Merlin, like the, the raptor, you'll find it. Or uh, the wizard from King Arthur. Or, or that, that's a good way to, yes. that's a good way to think of you. <laughs> I wonder what, I wonder if there's a connection there to whoever named the Merlin. <laughs> I would like that's to think so. Question. Yeah, I'm not sure what the history of that name is. Maybe one of your listeners can, can tell us. I may have mentioned this to you, Michelle, previously, but Bridget and I had a kind of wild connection that we didn't know about when we first met. I showed up to um, Bridget's home in Harrisonburg where my partner Catherine was also living at the time. And uh, I was, you know, giving everybody the spiel of what I do for a living and mentioned that I work at the outdoor lab. And Bridget chimed in and said, oh, the outdoor lab, wait a minute. I think, I feel like I know that place. Uh, do you know somebody named Neil? And then to tell me her end of the story. <laughs> so I was hiking one day out here in uh, the George Washington National Forest. And um, yeah, I was out birding. And this guy walked up and, you know, we were just chatting. And, and he was, I, you know, I'm, I'm still learning Eastern bird species because most of my birding has been done out West. So I was like, you know, trying to identify this one bird. And he was like, oh, it's a, it's a Eastern wood peewee. And I was like, oh yeah, that's totally what it is. That's great. And, you know, we were just chatting for a while and then he introduced himself and he said that his name was Neil and he was, had just retired recently from, relatively recently from the, this place called the Outdoor Lab in Northern Virginia. <laughs> and so it was so funny because I, you know, we just had a lovely little chat and he helped me with some birds and just a super nice guy. And then, yeah, when I met Charlie and he, he mentioned the name of, of the place you guys work. I was like, 
that sounds really familiar. <laughs> I wonder if there's a connection here. So yeah, that was super fun. <laughs> appreciate how accessible you made birding sound. I think a lot of people are put off because they're like, I don't know anything about birds, mm -hmm. you know, and just, just go start looking at them. And I really, I appreciate that because it makes it, you know, open to anybody. Anybody can look at a bird. Absolutely. Exactly. That's cool. Can you give us a brief description of your next project? Uh, so I'm going to be driving out to California probably next week. Um, uh, to work with an organization called Point Blue Conservation Science. Um, they're, I, if I'm not mistaken, they're, I think, the oldest bird observatory in the U.S. They used to go by the name Point Reyes Bird Observatory. Or, yeah, some, yeah Point Reyes Bird Observatory. Um, but I'm going to be working in Southern California in the Mojave Desert, right outside Death Valley. Um, which yeah, I'm really excited about. As I mentioned, deserts are my favorite ecosystem. So, uh, so they, they have, they're just an incredible organization. Um, and this program has been going on for, I think it's, I don't want to give you the wrong number, but it's, I think it's around 15 years between the 10 and 15 year mark. Um, so essentially least bells vireos are a subspecies of bells vireo, which are a Western vireo. Um, and they have some, they occur in Southern California and in Baja California, and they're considered both state and federally endangered. Um, and a big part of, of why they're endangered is they nest solely in, in desert riparian areas. And those have, you know, for many different reasons, as, you know, riparian areas all over the country have suffered, um, you know, at human hands. And so there, those, those corridors aren't doing so well. And the Mojave is a really hot, really dry desert. So, you know, if you get rid of those riparian corridors, it's, it's not so easy to grow them back, essentially. Um, and so that's been one of the biggest threats that and cowbird parasitism, which for folks who don't know what that is, cowbirds are, are species of birds that, um, actually uh, have evolved to kick other birds, like they lay their eggs in other birds' nests um, and kick, you know, some of the other eggs out and then leave the parents of the other species to raise them. It's part of, it, it's, I know it sounds totally crazy and it kind of is, but it, I mean, they evolved this and so they clearly fit within the ecological scheme of things. It's just when humans get involved and we start shifting things around, it can make it messier for the birds who are parasitized by the cowbirds, least bells varios being one of them. So um, they're under, you know, pretty significant duress. Um, and this program has uh, replanted this area of, uh, or restored this area, I should say, of, of riparian um, right outside of Death Valley. And so uh, they've been monitoring this for over a decade now to see if, you know, how much are these changes actually helping? Um, the least spelled vireo. So my job is going to be to do what's known as nest searching and territory mapping. And so nest searching, it's what it sounds like. Um, I find a bird and I follow that bird to its nest, essentially. And then once I find that nest, these are, you know, within two study plots um, that they've been working on for a bunch of years. Once I find that nest, I mark its coordinates on a GPS. Um, and then throughout the season, uh, which will be about three months, I'm gonna be going back to that nest and checking, you know, how many eggs were laid out of those, how many of them fledged, how many were predated, 
um, or you know failed for some other reason. Did uh, the birds have a second um, group of young that year as well? Um, so that's primarily focused on least-billed vireo, but I'll also do it for other species that are that are in that region. And then territory mapping is always pretty much always paired with nest searching, and it's you're essentially um, you know if you hear a, a male uh, I don't know herbald thrasher singing from uh, a particular tree, and then you're noticing another one singing over here, you're going to document both the location for both of those, um, and activities like that, you're documenting using GPS coordinates and over the course of the season, it gives you information on like, okay, where are these birds territories located? How big are they? Um, and when you pair that with things like uh, doing vegetation surveys, which I'll be doing as well, it kind of gives you a picture of where are these, where are these birds hanging out? What do they need to survive? What's their kind of most happy spot? Um, what's going to encourage there to be more room for these birds essentially um so it's kind of a it's a bunch of different things but um that's what i'll be doing <laughs> for three months so oh again rather envious <laughs> <laughs> sounds like a lot of fun and extremely comprehensive with the vegetation aspect and the territory aspect and also the nests and i mean wow thank you thank you for that work that's yeah incredible yeah i am so excited to be a part of it it just seems like an amazing program it's it's a, it's such a cool thing to again I, i'm just gonna give a little plug for field biology because i know you guys work with a lot of kids and it's i mean it doesn't pay a lot you'll be eating a lot of rice and beans but rice and beans are great and a lot of people around the world primarily eat rice and beans so i don't see an issue there <laughs> um but no in all seriousness it's and it's an incredible way to combine something that is really fun for you as an individual, for me as an individual, which is climbing around outside and, you know, and combining that with knowing that like, I'm actually, I'm going to be doing something that's directly linked with making a difference for an endangered species. That's, that's, I can't imagine a better mix of those two things. So just again, for those who are interested in taking it beyond birding for fun you can do this and get paid too <laughs> well we wish you the best on that we're hoping for some good news i guess right i hope so yeah i hope so cool yeah thank you so much bridget yeah thank you guys so much this was really fun talking to you and um yeah I've, i the work you guys are doing up there is so important so that's, that's the other half, you know, there's the like out in the field, getting data, collecting data, and then there's the translating it to people and especially kids. Um, so you guys are doing incredible work up there. Thank you for, for what you're doing. It's so important. I am so thrilled to be sharing this with you guys on our podcast today. I want to say thank you so much to Bridget for sharing her knowledge and taking the time today with us to inform us about hawks and birding and bird watching. I'm excited to go out and observe some birds myself. Join us on our next podcast, where we release a special Earth Day podcast coming to you from the Outdoor Lab with all things Earth Day and eco-friendly ideas. For more Outdoor Lab, follow us on social media. Take care, stay safe, and go outside. <laughs>